Hello and welcome to season four, episode three of Dualist Unity. I am letting go more and more of the idea of myself as being anything resembling the truth. And through that, it's allowing me to recognize that any ideas of anyone else that I have is never, ever going to be the truth. And through those recognitions, I am experiencing a shitload more freedom in my life. And I am very much enjoying it. And I have nothing clever to say today. I have nothing that I'm going to expand upon or try to be insightful about, because I think that's the lesson I want to get across. A lot of people have been communicating lately that they feel like they're not saying the right thing, or they feel like they're not doing the right thing. They feel like they're not living up to their own expectations. And I just wanted to make an example of the fact that there are no expectations except for your own. I mean, I could be judging myself for opening a podcast with this, but I'm not. And I'm not because it's valuable to do so. If you get something out of it that allows you to stop judging yourself, just be, just express yourself. It's not always going to land. It's not always going to be appreciated. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. As long as your intention is not to do harm, as long as it's coming from a place of clarity and empathy to the best of your ability, just express yourself. And I think that that is a perfect sentiment to start this episode on. We have a very exciting guest who is joining us today. I do have one quick announcement, of course, which is that the second Dualistic Unity Retreat is coming up April 1st to April 9th. It's going to be nine days on Vancouver Island, Canada. Um, a chef is going to be making all of our meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, beautiful desserts. Everything's very healthy. And of course, Chef Caitlin is a genius when it comes down to it. She's lovely as well. You're going to enjoy meeting her. But it's eight days of just insightful conversations outside of the rat race, outside of everybody who's lost in their own need to self-validate, trying to push and pull you an actual space where you can take the insights that you've been working on and absorb them and then go back into the world and try to apply them. So that's coming up April 1st. Tickets will be available publicly on the website, dualisticunity.com as of December 23rd. If you have any questions at all, do reach out to us because we love to talk about this and we would love to see you there. That all said, let's get into the episode. Uh, today, we are joined by Lisa Ann, who is both the host of the Lisa Ann Experience and the Dudes Do Better podcast. She is the co-host on the Better Sports Network, as well as the author of two books, The Life and The Life Back, the latter of which I intend to talk about a little bit later on. Um, the reason that we're so excited to have Lisa Ann on the show with us today is because, frankly, she values community self-empowerment, and the importance of enthusiastic selflessness. She encourages inspiring and uplifting creators, and she does so because of the ripple that it creates, or rather that's the impression that I get. And I find it incredibly interesting to note that as a result of that intention, she has become an insightful and uplifting creator. And she's creating a much bigger ripple than I think any of us could possibly understand because we're always thinking about ourselves and how we are a part of that ripple. So I'm just happy to be a part of that. And this conversation is going to serve exactly that purpose to see what insights we can dig out for you, dear listener, because we love having you here. That's all this is about. So that all said, I'm going to stop talking now and just uh, ask you, Lisa Ann, if you could tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself. And more importantly, where do you find all the energy and the passion for everything that you're involved with? Because I, I share that passion to some degree and people tend to look at me like, are you going to stop at some point? But you're involved in so much. I'd love to hear more about that. 
So let's start with the jump, the, the conversation of like energy, right? Very young, I was fortunate to have a neighbor who I spoke a lot about in my first book. Her name was Peggy. She was 102 years old, two days before her 102nd birthday before she passed away. So for 43 years of my life, I was inspired by this woman who could never have her own children, who married a man who was a widower, which in the 70s, people didn't do this, who really lived to her own thoughts. She made all of her own food. She had a garden. She had a well, so she had well water. She always crocheted blankets for the unamusing quotes because she would say the old people at the nursing homes. Meanwhile, she was making these when she was older than some of these people. And this woman called me daredevil from the time I was a kid. I had an older brother, but he wasn't daredevil. I was daredevil. And she showed me like photos of California before anything was there. She showed me different places in the world. And she just saw me as a person that was going to live truly freely. And she instilled in me that there was no reason to have the same plan. You know, I grew up in a small town. I have 36 first cousins. Most of my cousins were already planning to get married when they were in high school. They were already, you know, actively dating to procreate more children and everybody. This was just, if you don't get out of this town, this is where you're going. This is what everybody's doing. And she just was able to allow me to be a free thinker. And, you know, she used an expression that a lot of people would think is dark, but she would say, you know, you're born alone, you die alone. And this woman had an impact on me when I was younger that I didn't really even understand until I started really making a lot of my own big decisions. And the big decisions I made were never going to get acceptance or approval from my family, from a lot of my friends, from most of my community. And I knew that at 18, I'm working at a strip club, interviewing feature dancers, figuring out how I could get to California to get in the business with three goals. And those goals were written in my trapper keeper when I was 16. I wanted to travel and see the world, be financially independent and make my own schedule. And those kind of three things really came from Peggy. And they were really as simple as that. Like, you know, that's what she did. That's how she lived. And there was no constant plan. She wasn't one of those people that wanted to keep a list of things that were going to be going on in a calendar. She's like, I get invited to things. If I remember that day and I want to go, I'm going to go. And her spirit of just the happiness that I saw with her, she didn't argue with people. She didn't force her opinion on anybody. She loved everybody equally. The neighbors would gossip about other neighbors. She stayed out of the fray. That was never her. And so I kind of emulated this person who made me feel like you are on this earth on your own as your own person to decide who you want to be, when you want to be that person, if you want to stay that person or you want to adapt. And that structure of just looseness of looking up to her for so many years of my life gave me the confidence to just say, I'm going to write my own story. And there's going to be a lot of people that, that, that fall off, right? Because a lot of people are not going to agree with where I'm going and what I'm doing. But the fact that I've traveled and seen the world on someone else's dime, because I've traveled to do these trade shows and I've traveled traveling. I don't even know what it costs to go to Australia, but I've been there nine times. You know what I mean? Like I go to, I just went to Switzerland for 10 days. Now, when I get a trip, 
I never just do the three days of work. I stay for a week after I'm already there. So then I will look at it. Like if I get this trip, I'm willing to spend half the money I make on this trip just to stay on this trip longer because I want to explore this country and I want to build memories of these things. And so I think for me, it was really young growing up in a tumultuous family. I came from a horrible divorce. My parents never got over it. They were very nasty to each other, was very judged in the Italian Catholic community that my mom broke up our family and got divorced. So there was I just watched all this like weird animosity around me as a young person. And it made me feel even more isolated, but then it made me feel even stronger that I didn't have to get the approval of these same people to live the life that I wanted to live because I didn't approve of the life that they live by being negative and toxic and gossiping. Like I knew young, like I don't want to ever be a gossip. So if I'm going to waste the time that people are spending gossiping, well, I can use that time to have great conversations with people, fulfilling conversations, help people, connect with people, answer people's questions. Uh, I can be more present in a positive space for people and they know they're never going to get the reverse for me. They know I'm never going to feed into it and they know it's just not what I'm about. So you ask how I have the time. I have the time because I choose to live a life that is shared with people who are aligning with my mindset in their own head, where it's like, they want to be their own person. I support that. You want to do some, I support that. I'm not telling you what to do. If you come to me and say, should I, or should I not do this? I'm not going to say either way. I'm going to tell you to sit with your feelings. I'm going to tell you to go 72 hours. And on one of the days I want you to visualize what it was like to do that thing. One of the days I want you to visualize what it's like to not do that thing. And then on the third day, I want you to visualize how both those days looked. Wow. That is an incredible way to start off this episode. <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing all, all that because honestly, I think you just expressed in so many words, freedom, you just express freedom. That's, that's what it comes down to. And even starting off with saying, you know, not necessarily having a plan and Peggy, was that your neighbor's yes. name? Yeah. Yes. Peggy didn't hold on to specific plans. She kind of existed in a state of uncertainty. And we've said it many times, uncertainty and freedom go hand in hand. You can't cling totally. to that state of certainty or the plan and the set schedule and the exact thing that you want to do for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of your life and be free at the same time. You can hold on to that schedule, sure, and, and cling to it. doesn't mean it's actually going to happen, but you're not going to be free along the way because the reality of this reality is uncertainty. We never know what's actually going to happen. And so being able to recognize that early on and exist in a state in which that becomes your normal, allows for you to explore reality and, and accomplish the things that you've wanted to accomplish and do all the things through this state of freedom. And so I think that's just such a cool story and, and being able to recognize that at such a young age from a woman who lived near you is just yes, really, we shared, really, we shared a yard and, and she, people would invite her to something and she would just look at them and she'd say, well, I don't know how I'm going to feel that day. And I would laugh so hard because I'm like, oh my gosh, you pretty much just said no to the reputation. She goes, no, I didn't. I just told him all now I'm going to feel that day. <laughs> she didn't commit. She wouldn't commit. Simplicity was what she lived for. Yeah, because she, she didn't need to be seen in any certain way by anyone. She was free in herself. And so why does she need anyone to look at her in any given way? And being able to let go of that in, in your own life early on, I feel like is honestly just in anyone's life, one of the most helpful things that they can ever 
recognize is that someone's opinion of you or their perception of you or their thoughts about your the way you're living your life has nothing to do with the reality of of your value or your worth or says anything about whether you're doing the right or the wrong thing. And I think just in my own experience, being able to let go of that fear of judgment is the most freeing thing that I've ever been able to let go of bordering on letting go of the idea of myself as truth. But I think they kind of go hand in hand in a way, but yeah, it's like one of the keys to being free and, and living the life that you've always wanted to is being able to move forward without so much concern for the perception of anyone, because, you know, it's all going to be through their own experience and what they cling to. Cause you know, they, they're suffering in themselves for the most part, they have a prison they exist within and they kind of want you to be back in their prison. Do you two remember career day at school? Yeah. I remember just feeling like there was nowhere I fit in at career day. I remember I'd walk around and think to myself, I don't want to do any of these things. Like I grew up in a small town, mind you, there were not a lot of options, but I remember just thinking I'm moving. I mean, by 16, I already knew I was moving. I was like, not enough options here. Um, not locking into one of these things. These people have worked these same places for 30 years. I could not do this. Uh, and just seeing that, you know, I just didn't see that the people that were doing what they were telling me I needed to do with my life. I didn't see them as happy. Absolutely. Exactly. I got very excited there. I don't know if anybody noticed that I was on mute, but yeah, that, that's exactly the point is that everybody's telling you what to do from a place where they're not happy with themselves, but they won't look at that. They don't want to talk about that because then that's drawing attention to what's obvious, right? I just want to convince myself I'm happy. And I do that by comparing myself to my assumptions of you. And it's always superficial assumptions. So I wanted to say something very quickly about the journey that you've been on and, and, and Peggy, bless her heart and all the impact that she had on you. And I'm sure numerous, numerous other people in her lifetime. I, I think it's so very interesting that you had the, your three goals, which you've accomplished, but the goal underneath it has always been to expand yourself, to let go of that idea, to live fluidly, as it were, to be able to continue to expand in whatever direction that you want. And I think that's so interesting. We were having a conversation on our Patreon group this morning uh, about Leonardo da Vinci, uh, uh, da Vinci. And basically we were talking about all of the things that he invented, the fact that he got into several different things, painting and, and philosophy and sculpting. And he just went every direction he could trying to find a way to express himself in every way that he could. And people look at his artwork and they go, wow, that's amazing. But the true work of art was da Vinci, was himself who he became over a lifetime of just exploring things. And I think it's so very interesting that that's the case with us and yourself. Everything that you've ever went through in your life has led you to be exactly the person that you are and look at the impact that you're having in the same way that Peggy had that impact on you. And you couldn't have gotten there without any of the hardship. Oh, there's no doubt. No doubt. I mean, our greatest teachers are definitely those things. I get a lot of questions about regret and people are always emailing for the mailbag questions about regret. And I say the same thing every time you can't regret anything. We can make mistakes and forgive ourselves for those mistakes, but regret is a wasted emotion. I mean, you wouldn't be exactly where you are at this moment if you regretted one of those steps. It's the sliding door theory. But I was extremely lucky to have such an incredibly powerful person in my life that I really looked at her life as the life that I wanted in, 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 a, in a huge family and, and looking at everybody else. There was this, this woman and her husband passed away when I was eight years old. So 
it was kind of just her and me. And I would go over there like every day and I had a spare room at her place and we would sew together. She taught me how to sew. I would make all the dresses for like an upcoming event, a wedding, what have you. We'd go to the store, we'd get the pattern, we'd get the fabric, we'd make it from scratch. And it was this on ongoing thing with us. And these were just like the little simple things that made something more special. She wasn't, she was more of a minimalist for sure. Um, but having the impact of someone like her gave me the confidence to take a lot of the chances that I've taken and also to be able to pick myself up and say, okay, that didn't work. Uh, let's try this. That's awesome. Yeah. I know, I know, uh, minimalism is something that you've spoken about a decent amount. It sounds like something that you've more recently gotten into in your life. And I would just love to hear more about that experience. And maybe it's something that you were involved with without necessarily understanding that it was minimalism when you were younger or growing up in different ways, shapes, and forms. But I'm curious what got you to a point. And, you know, as we've been talking about, everything gets you to the decisions that you make uh, that you've ever experienced. And we can go as far back as saying all of eternity has gotten us to this conversation here now. But for, <laughs> for you getting into minimalism, I'm curious what sort of sparked that interest or what did you experience that that made you recognize that, oh, there's actually a lot more freedom in not having so many things as opposed to acquiring more things because acquiring more things just becomes more balls and shackles and, and handcuffs as opposed to the freedom that really we're always desiring. So you mentioned my second book, uh, The Life Back. I write about this in detail in that book. And I went through a situation in 2015 that pretty much shut me down for a year. So for a year, other than going to the gym, I did not go out. Friends came to me. Uh, it was dark. It was a time where I removed alcohol from my life for two years. Uh, I took all of these steps to be sure that I would make it through this absolutely awful situation, which ended up being one of my greatest teachers. And during that time, I allowed myself, I, I did a reading challenge. I read a book a week for a year. I watched a ton of documentaries. And it was the first documentary that really changed me was minimalism. And so when I watched the minimalist on minimalism, I was like, got to order books, you know, got to read all about it. And it, 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 it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was living in a 4,000 square foot home in Los Angeles by myself. I had filled every closet in that home by myself. And I realized like, okay, take inventory and in what you've done here. You've created where you're making money, but you're spending money. So you have to continuously be making money. You're buying stuff that you're only using once because you're carrying what other people might feel that you wore it to an event. You can't wear it to another event. You have an entire closet of like event dresses. You have entire closet of like trade show clothes. Like, what are you doing? So it took me, I decided that summer that I was like, I am going to minimize my life by 75%. And I'm not going to rush to do this. I'm going to do like one section of my home at a time. And whether it's things that I could sell, whether it's things that I could give away, whether donate, you know, I had friends that would come over. I'd put all kinds of clothes in a room and say, here's everything. Come over for four hours tonight, go through, take what you want. Um, I had collected sports memorabilia. So I, I met with a vendor and I'm like, I'd like to sell this stuff and just put this money away for savings because I no longer need to have this many walls to hang this many things on. And it was such a, an amazing process because as you touch everything that you saved or you purchased, you think about it. 
uh, why, what, what did this mean to me? Did this make me feel better? Did this dress change my life? Did these shoes change my life? Um, you have tchotchkes, you like little things, like things that I kept were like my high school yearbook, my high school scrapbook, like just little things that I, a lot of things, I just took pictures of them and saved the picture on a hard drive. But that 75% that I ended up moving then full-time into an apartment that could fit in my bedroom in my other house. Okay. And I was like, I just want to live simple. And when you're in a small space, everything has a space and you have to put it away. Otherwise it's in your way. And I love it. And when I moved initially December of 2019, it was right before the pandemic. And I will say becoming a minimalist before the pandemic made that whole situation so much easier for me because I had less needs. I had less stuff to take care of. I had less things that could need to be fixed. I had four bathrooms in my other house. What if I needed to call somebody over to fix them? I don't need to fix anything. It was such a lesson to myself. I put myself on a spending freeze for a year. So I wasn't allowed to buy anything for myself unless it was a necessity. So food, what have you, no clothes, no nothing. And I remember when I went back to, okay, your year is up. What's the first thing you're going to buy? It was gym clothes because I go to the gym five days a week. And I was like, okay, my gym clothes are definitely worn out. Like I definitely need new gym clothes, but I wasn't determined. Like I was, I wasn't like I used to be. I went to buy the gym clothes and I left. It wasn't that I walked through the mall. It wasn't that it was this whole like satisfaction. It was like, it became very factual. Like I need this. To this day, if I buy something new, I have to get rid of something. So normally if I'm on a mission to buy something, I have to know what it is I'm getting rid of. Um, you know, now I just donate all of my stuff because in the city, we know there's an overpopulation of homeless people and there's churches that take in clothes and it's, you know, somebody's getting it and is going to get to use it. But I learned about why I spent money, which was to get the approval of other people. Uh, why I, because I, I thought, you know, money is easy to come by. So I should spend it just as quickly. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just want to live a more free life where you have more free time with your friends and you don't have to take every job that that comes up? I mean, I work half as much as I used to because I don't need as much stuff. I learned just about, you know, who I thought I was to who I really am and realized I'm going to be no different when I get rid of 75% of my life, my friends are not going to like me less. Um, it just was a habit. And I think growing up in a home where we had a lot of stuff, it was just easy to continue to buy stuff and then not get rid of something. Cause you might need that. It's like, no, get rid of something or don't buy something, have an idea of what you need when you're going to shop so that you just stay on that. But it was, it was everything. It was just amazing going through everything. My kitchen, I took every single thing out of my kitchen. I put it in my dining room. Part of it was a dining room table. Then it was a dining room floor. And I decided that I would just for a month, put the stuff back in my kitchen as I needed it. And then whatever I didn't use in that month was going to go to Goodwill. And I was like blown away at all of the things I had bought from like infomercials or like, this is going to make eggs better. This is going to no, you know what? I use the same pan. Like it simplified my life to a point where when you're actually a month goes by and you see, and you're like, oh, now my kitchen is awesome. Everything goes away. Everything's so easy to put away. And I have all that stuff that I don't use. It was a really grounding experience and it was busy work 
when I was trying to fight going through a dark time, being depressed, it gave me projects. And sometimes we go through things in life that are just so emotionally shattering, but you have the faith and the patience to know that it's going to end. So you do need to find somewhat of busy work so that you have something going on every day, right? Something to get up for. I was taking apart a project or to closet, pulling everything out. You know, all of that really helped me pass that time. And by the time it was over, I was already to the other side of a bad experience and was ready to just live my new life. So it kind of was like a cool rebirth and a way to go through of the past person that I somehow became without even really knowing it. When you have a lot of space, you'll buy stuff just because you could put it away. If you don't allow yourself to have too much space, then you can never buy too much stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an interesting journey. I love how you did that in general. It's funny because normally here on the podcast, we Talk about, I guess, a conscious minimalism, the less you're carrying in terms of how much you're trying to value yourself by exterior things, the less you typically need. You just got rid of everything, revealing everything that you were holding on to for a sense of value. And you just did it that way. That's beautiful. That's, that, that's fantastic. It's an interesting process to go through, but it's always tied back to this idea that the more I have, the more valuable I am, right? If I let this go, then what does that say about me? It's like nothing. It doesn't say a thing at all continue on enjoy your life and that's it so that that's a hell of a journey i i have to ask because this kind of goes back to your book and I, I want to bring this up quickly quickly you had mentioned that after some traumatic events that had happened um and i'm going to quote this here i felt all that surrounded me was fear and darkness and at the same time the silence created space that allowed an openness to listen and learn and what i discovered was myself I think that's really interesting. And I, I wanted to ask about that quickly, because normally when people say, I found myself, they're saying an idea. They're saying an idea that they can value themselves through. But given your mentality, I don't think that's what you meant. And I'm curious what you meant by that, because I think that would be really important for our audience to understand, especially those who are trying to find that sense of self. I realized that, uh, so it was the first time I was really forced to be still in my life where I wasn't traveling. I wasn't doing, I wasn't, you know, working. Um, I was at home. And so that silence is either going to drive you crazy or allow you to think and identify with your thoughts. And you don't have anybody else's opinions coming in. You don't have any distractions of fun things that are making you forget about something you thought about, but didn't finish the actual thought. And it made me actually realize, no, who I am is a person that loves experiences. I love to travel. I love to be face-to-face -face with my people. Uh, I love to create memories. Stuff was never who I was. Stuff was who I became when I moved to California and hung around with other people that loved stuff. And it just became part of like, oh, it kind of like, it landed on me. And I would go back and think when I was going through all my stuff, I would go back and think about looking at Peggy's closet. She always wore A-line skirts. The only, even to work in her garden, the, the calf length A-line skirts that she made herself. She only wore pants, pajamas. I remember all of these details. And she had like 10 skirts and 10 tops hanging in her closet with like four pair of shoes and then one pair of work shoes that were out by the porch. That was all that woman ever owned. That was all she ever wanted. Uh, when she 
made a new skirt. She donated a skirt. And I went back and looked at that closet and thought, how did you fall so far from that closet? It was out. It was external influences, you know, moving to California from Pennsylvania, making money, doing all of these things. And as I started to go through the levels of disappointment, I felt for myself, for the money that I had recklessly spent that I could have saved, you know, there was a, there, you go through layers of like, guilt, you know, and then you forgive yourself and then you have these conversations with yourself. And then you really, you're, as you're peeling it back, you're like, I didn't do any of this for me. I did all of this for the external vision of what people thought was me. And so here I am in my place. I'm not seeing anybody. I'm going through all of my stuff. And I really realized like, this was never you. But it's okay because you're young enough to never go back there again and to understand that you're not defined by what you wear. And, you know, I love clothes. Most women do. And so, you know, now it's this careful thing of like, okay, I'm going to be doing this many events this year. I'm going to buy this many things. And I'm going to wear this to this one, this one, and this one. Whereas before it was, I'm doing this many events and I'm going to wear something different to every single one. Now I'll buy some quality things. I'll take care of them. I'll plan out the things and I'll put a budget together for it. Like I start to forward think differently than I did then. And when I was going through these things, I realized how we complicate our space by having stuff and that complicates your brain because you're always managing that stuff. There's more to put away. There's you feel stuff around you, even though it's a way you don't realize that you're feeling the weight of stuff. And as I went one room at a time and, and walked into empty closets, I was like, that's right, because this is a spare room and you're not a guest. So why would you have anything in this closet? This is not your closet, Lisa. This is a guest closet. And then once the house is empty, I'm like, you got to sell this house. There's no reason for you to have this house anymore. You're pretty much only in one room. And this is ridiculous. And I listed my house for sale. I mean, when I was going through this at that time, I didn't know I was going to sell my house, but it also was just one of those defining moments where it's like, there is no reason for you to have this much space. A family belongs in this house. You don't belong in this house. You belong in a space that you can easily maintain on your own, uh, that that's comfy for you. And that allows you to travel and not worry about it. That allows you to have more time to be free and do other things than the time that you're using to take care of this big house. Wow. That's awesome. I, I actually have a similar, similar experiences with getting rid of stuff. Cause I lived in New York, as you know, for about four years. And so I lived in what, three different apartments. And so every time that I moved apartments, I used it as an opportunity to just get rid of a bunch of shit. And one of the main ones was when COVID happened, I left, I went to my family's place and uh, one of my good friends who was my roommate at the time, uh, his family had a bunch of storage units in the city. They lived in Manhattan. He grew up there. Um, and they had a little bit of space where I could throw some stuff. And so I put some stuff there that I didn't think I would need and ended up not coming back to it for six months. And I went back and my mom was helping me move into my new place at this point. And I'm sitting there like, shit, I haven't, there's, there's been one, there was one jacket that I could have used a couple of times through those six months out of all the things that I put in there. I was like, if I haven't needed it in six months, I probably don't need it. And so I literally like took it much to my mom's like she's she's not a hoarder but she you know she she likes to hold on to things and because she might listen to this so mom i'm not saying you're a hoarder just know that uh you just like holding on to some stuff which is totally understandable um but so anyway so i took it and i basically just like 
didn't even look at it and I just put it in a bag and brought it to Goodwill. And I was like, yep. I clearly don't need that. And it's fascinating. It seems like in your story, as you've let go of the need for any external validation or recognize more clearly the wholeness and completeness that you've always been, you always will be, you always have been, and you are right now, there isn't so much need for any of the external things. And so it, it seems like for most people in their life, as they recognize more and more that the external doesn't mean anything about their value and worth, they're willing to let go of more of the external. It doesn't actually apply or, or add anything to you. If anything, it really just weighs you down. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't recognize, especially in you know our current state with you know the whole toxic messages of guys like Andrew Tate and stuff saying that you know you're not free you're still in the matrix if you don't have you know 10 Lamborghinis and seven girlfriends and four houses and it's like bro you're saying you're free holding on to all of that shit like by the way I'd never heard of him until he got canceled so just sidebar that I'd never <laughs> heard of him because of course that wasn't coming up in my feed because obviously I don't cater to that I'm not like in I'm watching you you know what I mean so it was not being fed to me thankfully Another thing too, that people don't realize is once you break free from that, your money adds up so fast because you're just not buying frivolous things. And you cannot believe like, you're like, where's all this money coming from? Well, obviously you don't think about the money you spend here or there, especially if you use credit cards, because it's out of sight, out of mind, you know, and you don't think about it. You don't think about it well, when you stop all of that and you say, I'm not going to buy anything for a year and you realize how much money has added up. Then you say to myself, I feel more free, not just from having less stuff, but you feel financially free to make decisions, to say no to things, to say yes to a vacation, to do things that are going to enrich you in so many better ways than a sweater. Well said. Well said, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to take a, a quick sidebar here, actually, if everybody's okay with going a little bit more towards the controversial. Um, you had said something earlier, and I thought it was really interesting in, in regards to Peggy, and it was that we are born alone and we die alone. And before that, we were talking about influence, about the ripples that we leave behind and so on and so forth. So my question is, how does your view and the fluidity that you embody obviously, reconcile the concept of God. Are you spiritual? Do you have a religious belief? Or is it more or less just the here and now expressing itself? I'm very curious as to what your view is in this. And I want you to know, I'm going to preface that with, we don't believe anything because we think the belief is what gets in, way, in the way of the reality. So you're not going to offend anybody by any means. And our listeners are well aware of how often we go here. So I, I appreciate your views. So my number one belief system is karma. So I guess uh, many would say that's a Buddhist belief, right? But really karma. So Peggy went to a non-denominational church, which was very ahead of her time. And she went really, that was a gathering for her. It was a place to belong. You know, I grew up going to Catholic church, which was pure insanity because all of my relatives smoked, drank, cheated on their wives, gossiped. And like, I remember thinking like, oh, this is what Catholics do. Okay. We're home from church. And I wrote about this in my first book. We go to my ancestor church. Everyone was still in their church clothes and they'd be doing everything that we were just told in church not to do. And I'm like eight years old, looking around going like, why do we just spend an hour and a half at this place? Like, what are we doing with our time? So 
I don't knock anybody's belief system because I believe if something makes you feel warm in your heart, then you should hold on to it, right? If that's something that gravitates to you and it makes you feel more positive, more enlightenment, if it's something that makes you take an hour out of your week every every week and be still with your thoughts and want to have a better life, I support that. So I visit churches all over the world. And I also go to masses of all different religions just because I love the feeling of it. I love the feeling of people who do believe in something that's carrying them to want to be better because maybe they don't believe in themselves enough that they could be better on just their own thought process and they need some sort of a leader over them to tell them this is what you have to do. And you know what? I respect that too, because we're not all leaders. Some people need to be followers and they're just as important in our society as leaders, right? So I can sit at a mass and look around at people and families. And I look at a family that got their kids dressed nicely. And I'm like, you took pride in getting it. So I see the beauty in the actual experience of it. But as for a religion, I'm driven by karma because I believe that, that what you put out in this world, the energy, the vibration, we want to stay on a high frequency. So what you put out is what you get back. That's not going to come from, you know, something above us or something that was here before us or something that's a belief system. Every religion has rules, which I always found very strange. It's like, if you don't do this, this is going to happen to you. If you do do this, this is going to happen to you. You're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to hell. And I can remember my dad was so religious and he had the envelopes to donate, you know, the Catholic church, it's a minimum of 10% of your income. And so we'd be away on vacation. We'd get back to go to mass and he'd say, Oh, I have to give my extra envelopes because we were away. And I would be like, well, you know, we didn't use any power. You know, we didn't go any, we didn't use, we weren't there. Like, why are you still pitching it? He's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to go to heaven and I want to be buried by the church. And I remember like looking at him as a young girl and saying like, you know, crazy that sounds that you think that your actions on this earth aren't more important than what you're putting in this envelope right now. He wasn't a great person. So he believed that by paying his way in was going to work. So that kind of gave me the understanding of the alternate reality that can come with people buying into whatever their religion of choice is for the purpose that they want it. They want it to wash away their negativity or, or the things that they feel bad about. So I don't not believe because I want to support everyone out there that has a belief. And so that's where I keep it really open. When I was going through my, my tough year, I went to a church down the street from me every Sunday and it's a non-denominational church. I would walk down there and I just went because I wanted to be in a room of people who had faith in something because I was dealing with this mantra of like, all you have to have is patience and faith. And all you have to have is patience and faith. And I felt like I could get through the patience part, but my faith was being tested. So I was like, put yourself in a room of other people that have faith. And some of my friends are very anti-religions. They were like, this is crazy. We can't believe you're going to church. I'm like, you don't understand why I'm going. And, and, and it's just for me to define at this moment. And I'm really glad that I did it because it, brought me closer to my community. It gave me a local place to donate things to. Uh, it gave me something to belong to in a time where I felt like I wasn't belonging to anything. And it, it was a band-aid. And so, you know, when I was in Switzerland, I wanted to see this church and they, they worship the Black Madonna and it's such an incredible figure and this 24 karat gold coat. And so the, the four hour drive in the middle of nowhere, no plane, no train can get you there. And I made sure we got there. I had to see it. My friend flew a drone. Like I had like, we had, we, we did this. I had to see it because 
it's so massive. It holds thousands of people. And we went on a Monday, so it wouldn't be crowded, but I just kind of like to visualize how other people live their life and where their head is. And I look at what makes them tick. Now it might not be the same thing that makes us tick, but it makes them tick. And for some people, I think they need a reset because they can't stay on their own kind of positive plane. And for some people, it's something to take their children to, to be mindful of the spirit, to be mindful of faith, to be mindful of patience. But for me, it's karma and it's karma 100%. And I live every day. Every action is really a mirror of what I want to see in my life. And that's the most important, but at the same time, we know that religion is a financial racket. Uh, we know that they do not pay taxes and we know that we make a ton of money, but if people are happy going and that makes them flutter inside, then I want them to go because I want people to pursue the things that make them feel good. And then hopefully they're going to identify within themselves eventually that they can feel that good at home. You know, Peggy used to tell me, if you really believe in something, if you believe in God, God is with you right now. You don't have to go to a house of worship. You don't have to pay money to go there. You don't have to follow, you know, you don't do these things, but she was more of a karma based person as well. And it just showed, you know, by how many people were always wanting to be around her in her last couple of days. So I'm not anti because I believe it's very important for a lot of people. And I just went and lit candles for some friends at St. Patrick's the other day because it's such a beautiful church. I love to go into churches and I love to think about all the people and the cultures and the languages that have passed through them because I find it fascinating. But I don't say that my life ticks or beats because obviously there's no list of rules that I fall under. So I would be automatically in everyone's mind burning in hell if there was a hell. <laughs> I feel that. I, I I understand that completely. Absolutely. That's really interesting. I, I wanted to say quickly, I'm going to pass this to Andrew, that karma, I don't know if necessarily, see, we talk about belief as a mechanism, as, as something that that we do as a strategy. And, and yep. I don't know if that's belief or recognition, because karma is very much the fact that what goes out comes back. It's just this recognition of what's happening. It's kind of the same as your appreciation for community. That's just an appreciation of what is for what you're seeing right then and there. And it, it really deepens depending on your participation in it. And you're very enthusiastic about your participation in it. So I think that goes deeper than belief. I think that you're touching on the divine. I, and I think that belief is, if anything, almost creating a veil over it that makes it difficult to see what's actually happening. And that's that. I think that's the only point I'm going to, I'm going to leave it here because there's more conversation to have. I'll pass it back to Andrew now, but that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny you bring up St. Patrick's. I was actually there uh, for a wedding in October. <gasps> you got to go to a wedding there? How beautiful was it? Yeah, it was it was incredible. It was one of my best friends uh, from college. She got she got married there, and yeah, wow, it was it was awesome. And it was when I was still in the city, so it was a lot of fun. I took a I had a tux, I wore a tux, and it was black tie, and I took a city bike up there. I was in <sighs> downtown, and yeah, it was it was a great time. Can I interject it, by saying it truly bothers me that when they remodeled that church, they put these vending machines in there where you can buy these hideous tokens and they also put tv screens on all the pillars and you're not supposed to watch it's not a jumbotron at a nfl game 
you're supposed to be silent enough that you can hear. And so like, I remember when the remodel was over and you know, I got to go in there during the pandemic. My big challenge here alone was to get every security guard that was protecting any building to let me in alone. And I would just ask and ask and ask. And I got to spend 45 minutes in St. Patrick with not another person in there. And it was the great, like just alone in that structure. Just, it was so cool, but it's a beautiful, beautiful church. So pretty. Yeah, it it really is. And I think, so I think a lot of the things that you touched on there, especially when you were going through that difficult, very difficult period of your life. And I know that's something we wanted to get to because we did read about some of that situation, at least. Um, when when you're talking about religion and the people going to it, I think what you found in those churches and in that time in your life was what religion was more or less meant to be, a sense of community and and connection. But it's the belief and and the feeling of faith that the people there have that kind of kind of distorts it in a way and we've talked about this many times but it uh it seems that when you went there being in a room full of people who you know have faith i find it very interesting because i think you were the only one in that room that had faith you're building a faith in yourself through the experience that you were having and and reinforcing to yourself that this is something you can handle through all the experiences you were having post that very difficult situation in your life and everything that went along with that. And so you were discovering true faith in a room full of people who didn't have true faith. They were believing in something, letting go or or not recognizing the faith that could be built within themselves. And it was almost like they were there because they don't have faith, true faith being faith in yourself, because faith in something else, I would argue is, is very far from, from true faith. Oh, remember I had to go through Holy Communion. I had to go through confirmation as, as a, you know, in an Italian family, you have to go through all of these things and you go through these things and you're told, you know, how things are going to go if you do these things properly. And I remember already thinking like, well, my parents are already divorced. You know, there's already a ton of chaos in my life. If you guys really believe in all of this and this is all going to be game changing, like why is the game the way that it is? Why am I playing on this court instead of that court? So I saw it for what it was really young. I pulled away for it for a period of time, but ever since I've been traveling, I've always visited all the different churches in the United States and all over the world, uh, just because it fascinates me how many different faiths there are, how many people, you know, kind of curate their entire life around a, a said belief system. And in some religions, it's a little better than others where it really is just about the act of kindness and sharing and giving. Um, but of course, growing up in the Catholic, it was very different. Yeah, I hear that. I, I grew up French Roman Catholic, so I got it pretty hard. And what's yeah. funny is I had a very similar background. Uh, my parents ditched me when I was like six months old. So I came out of a broken home. I was very much the black sheep. Everybody's doing that judgment thing. And again, it's just like, well, this is odd. So I ended up getting kicked out of Sunday school for asking questions I shouldn't have asked. Nobody appreciated me in that conversation whatsoever, but it led me down a path of exploring other religions, exploring other faiths, exploring other communities. And what I found really interesting is that underneath the structure, which is often what people are reaching for, of a certain mentality, people are reaching for something to save them. But the people that those religions were based on were all people who were willing to do it on their own. I find that really interesting. I find the fact that Jesus and Buddha and Mohammed, these were all people who were like, yeah, the insight's coming through me. 
I'm working on it, right? That mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, I'm going to look up to somebody else. Buddha said, you know, put no head above your own. Yep. Right. And so I think it's so very interesting that that mentality is not something that is fostered by religion, even though it's the thing that created the backbone of religion, even though it's the foundation of the mentality that had that divine experience to begin with. It's not something that we actually encourage because then we would have to be more individual. We would actually have to take it upon ourselves to be on the path and not look to that structure. And that's uncomfortable. And, and also, how do you act when you're outside of that structure? You know, that was a big conflict for me growing up was thinking that people used it as a tool to diminish the, their lives, right? The things that they weren't doing properly, weren't doing well. They used it as like, oh, I get to receive Holy Communion and I'm going to have a clean slate. And I remember like thinking like, well, you know, like, yeah, I remember going, having to go to a confession and I learned very young. It was just easier to say you lied. Boom. That was the only thing I would say. I lied. I don't have to tell you about what I lied about fighting with my brother. I lied about, you know, it was all these little, I lied was the blanket statement that kind of covered everything because in that religion, everything was about a lie. So I was like, I'm not going to sit. My brother was sitting there for a half an hour, tell the guy everything that he did wrong the whole week. And I'd walk in, I'd be like, we're good. I lied. How many Hail Marys do I have to do? He'd tell me I'd leave. My brother'd be like, you're so quick. I'm like, I got the generalized strategy going here. Okay. Blanket statement. I lied. That covers everything because I broke rules. I did whatever. Um, so I finagled my way to make it a quicker and easier experience. Clever. Absolutely. Because you're right. That's what it comes down to. It's just like, just give me my Hail Marys and let me go on yeah. my way. Right? So you feel better as being the divine connection to God. I'm really here for you and your ego. Just saying, right? Absolutely. It's such an interesting show, but that's what it is, is that it's all about the ego. And that's where it gets distorted, where if it's not about how you identify, if it's not about you and your concept of yourself, then it's just you being reality, right? Like without you, there is no here and now. You are the here and now. It's just that we think of ourselves as our name and our story and our narrative, right? But we're all just the here and now interacting with one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all religion was ever trying to get at. Jesus was saying, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, but we're all I. Mm-hmm. We all think of ourselves as I. So we're all mm-hmm. the way, the truth, and the life. We're all God. We're all connected. It's our idea of ourself that makes it impossible to see. And I think that's the worst shame about religion is that it actually gets in the way and it's supposed to bind us together. It actually comes from religio to bind together. Right. But what happens is that you identify and then all of a sudden you judge anybody who doesn't identify in the same way. So it tears us apart instead of bringing us together. People have made the argument like, oh, religion brings out the best in people. I disagree. I think community brings out the best in people despite religion. You know, and especially when you go to cultures that are extreme, you know, I I went to Turkey during the pandemic to shoot the first ever um sexual wellness series of videos for Durex. Now there's no sexual education there. It's absolutely illegal to talk to a young person about sex outside of the home and parents will not talk to their kids about sex because of religion. And so what's happening is there's thing called the internet where they can get whatever they want, whenever they want. And even though adult content is illegal in the Islamic culture, it comes in through different platforms. It comes in through Twitter, it comes in through gaming devices. And so you know, they're having a high teenage suicide rate because young women are getting pregnant and they can't tell their parents. They know a guy will never want them. And over the religion, they're taking their lives. You know, that's where it becomes 
really detrimental to society. And when you visit in and you see how it changes the rights from a man to a woman and, you know, just being in that culture for 10 days and really learning. And then, you know, even more so I had a day to go around. They hired an American tour guide for me that spoke English. And I got to go to a bunch of the mosques and I got these great photos of me in these mosques and they're so epic. And I posted some of the photos on my social media. The extremists were so up in arms that I was allowed in mosques that they went to Durek's and the people had to come to me and say, um, does Lisa Ann know what a fatwa is? Now, obviously I know what a fatwa is. I watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, I'm, I'm well-versed in these things. And they're like, well, if she doesn't scrub the internet, there's going to be a fatwa on here, her in New York City, which would be easily carried out cab driver, you know, whoever. And I thought I'm, I followed all the policies. My hair was covered. I was dressed, uh, had my shoes off. I did everything, but because of who I am, their religion is so extreme that I did not belong in a public structure that is supposed to welcome all because of religion. And so you traveling outside into other cultures where religion is, is very much extremism. It's not just sitting in to find some faith. It is defining every choice that you make in your life. And you know, the STD risk there is incredible. You know, they're going through things we went through in the seventies and eighties, just due to lack of information and information is power, but yet we cannot give these wonderful young humans this information because we don't want them to have this power because we need them to be powerless and abide by the rules of our religion. And it's, you know, it's been sad to really dig into and learn about and have those conversations when I was there, because I realized, wow, you know, when you use the word religion, it's a big statement, but you don't realize the outcome for some people and how extreme and devastating it is, how controlling it is on their life. They were just born there. It doesn't mean that they agree, believe, want to live that life and they cannot get out from underneath it. It's unreal. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. Uh, just for myself, as well as some of our listeners, what is a, what is a fatwa? Exactly. Uh, a fatwa is when anyone from a certain culture, there's a hit on your head. So anyone from that culture, so anyone, the the win is whoever gets to kill the person. You, it's coming. Uh, uh, it, one was just carried out here in New York. Uh, what is why is his name slipping me right now? Salman Rushdie. And if you remember, a couple of months ago, he was giving a speech here in New York and a guy jumped up on stage and stabbed him a bunch of times. Yo, talk about holding on to some old shit. Um, that had been going on since he released a book in the 80s, uh, 1988. And it took that he went, he lived underground for a period of time of his life. Like he hid and then he went on curb and played himself and talked about the fog because Larry had one for something that Larry had done. And so there was this whole kind of make, make light of it, but he was recently stabbed over this and it is, it, it is something that is carried on and it is anyone in that religion is to act on if they have the opportunity to kill you. So I would have been killed over having photos of me in the mosque. And I remember it was, it was like January 2nd. Cause I had gone there in November. They told me I couldn't post any photos till the end of December. And I remember when it happened, I was like, man, my new year is really starting out hot. I said this vast text to my friends, like, 
January 2nd, I've got a fatwa. And they were like, oh my gosh, like this is, I'm like, don't worry, I got this handled. But that's how extreme it was. And to think that I actually took my time to go over and create something to hopefully make the lives of the young people there safer to give them an opportunity to learn about condoms. That was the very first time they were ever able to advertise and sell them. Um, you know, to think that when they asked, you know, who should we have come and do this? And I was the number one most searched. Well, they don't know me because I do fantasy football. Like, you know what I mean? Like your kids are watching this content. Like clearly, like you need to know that it's getting in. So, you know, that, that was a, that was a moment where I was like, okay, these people are real. They're extremists. And I can't take this kind of a chance. Yeah. Good call. Keep your head down and like acknowledge mm -hmm. your audience. And it is a shame to some degree because you are trying to get something positive across. You are creating a ripple and it's not that the information is not there. It's just that there's a mentality that doesn't want it to be there. They don't it want it there. Everything that, that is the structure of their power. Right. I but, know. and I wanted to say, it's very much like a very large pond in the case that there, there are parts that we can't affect yet because we're so far away. So the ripples just don't travel, but we can create ripples that ripple against other ripples that ripple against other ripples. And eventually the entire environment changes, but it's through the work that you're doing right now, the people that you can reach, the people that you can reach who go on to reach others that you would never meet. And so it's really just a matter of, of time and patience and attention. And it has, it has to come from, a sense of priority. And I don't think that mm -hmm. belief has that priority. I think that belief is always trying to get to an end result instead of prioritizing the present. And the belief is trying to control. Nicely said. It, it, it's about control. And you really like, if you doubt it, go to an Islamic country and, and, and understand it, like understand the extreme of it, understand how different it is, how different it is to be a woman how different it is to still have to cover your hair. You know, all of these choices, the, the, the garb, the, you know, the, though there's some freedom of expression, the young people will tell you they're afraid to do it. Uh, so they still will just go along with, uh, you know, they'll take the path of what they consider to be least resistance, but it's impossible to create change when there's such a force for that much control. And that control doesn't really allow anyone to be, their own person. And it doesn't mean their own person is, is, is a complete risk taker, but they can't think out of the box. Any thought they have out of the box invokes fear in them, fear in their family. And seeing that was really something for me. I was like, wow, this is really educational and a, a real understanding. I thought it was fascinating how, you know, so many times a day you hear the song and everybody stops everything they're doing. It goes out to pray like multiple times a day when you're shooting commercials, you have to stop shooting during those times because of the sound, because everybody has to go out. And it's just like, wow, this really controls their lives. This is not an additive. This is in everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating how we see that. Like that's obviously the extreme end of a desire for control, but we see it in throughout all of our lives. We're always trying to control reality in some way, shape or form in an uncontrollable reality. So as we try and cling to it, we experience more suffering within ourselves, and and very much comes back to a letting go, a, a relaxing into that state of uncertainty, a recognition that you don't know where it's going to go or where you're going to go or what situation is actually best for you. And oftentimes, you know, some of the worst, most difficult situations we experience in our life lead to one of the most freeing, enlightening, 
enjoyable, freeing experiences in our life. And Ray, it looks like you're thinking about some stuff, but if if we're all right, I do have a segue into something else I want to talk about. Um, being, you know, and speaking of New Year's and whatnot, I did want to hear a little bit more about your experience from 2015 that sounds like kind of led to a year and a number of experiences being, you know, the Triple X Awards experience that you had and just a number of events that sort of led you down a pretty dark part of your life that eventually, you know, you had a lot of faith in yourself, you carried through and you came out the other end more or less free. So I would just love to hear about, you know, one of those experiences that in the moment, probably one of the most horrendous, difficult experiences you could possibly even imagine as a, as a person to then come out the other end and be in, you know, the place you are now in a, in a state of freedom. So you know, being in the adult industry, it, the easiest way for me to explain it is it's kind of like being in a gang, right? It's real exclusive. It's a small community. It's very tight knit. It's very competitive. There's a lot of money to be made. And so there's a lot fueling that can be kind of toxic, right? So when you try to break away from that gang and people are no longer going to make money from you or make money off of you, the resistance you feel is absolutely terrifying. And we don't see a lot of performers leave and have a secondary career. They'll either leave and kind of go underground and you don't know where they went. Maybe they got married, what have you. We have a lot of loss in the industry, a lot of overdose, a lot of suicide, a lot of darkness, a lot of feeling of suffocation. And so there was a combination of events that led to some very ill feelings and one was kind of me releasing that I was retiring on my Facebook as opposed to telling people that I was retiring. And I had carefully mapped this out for a period of time, but I thought, you know, I'm, I run my own company. I'm my own boss. I don't need to tell anybody. My best friends knew, but they're not in the business. So I didn't tell like, you know, my distributor, um, my camera people, I didn't tell anybody. Cause I was like, I needed to plan this for myself. And I had planned it, you know, within a year I had already uh, put the money down for my plastic surgeon to have my boobs reduced because at the time I had really big boobs. And I was like, if I'm not going to be in the business, I don't need all these things that in my mind were the most important thing for me. I was on my second contract with Sirius XM doing fantasy sports radio. I felt like I was going to keep this gig. And I was like, all right, it's time. And I came into this business alone. I'm going to leave alone. And so there was a combination of a joke that I made that I didn't tag anybody in but the person that felt it was against them lashed out, banded on with other people, banded on with my distributor, banded on with other people. And so it went from my distributor putting my library on sale for 75% off without my approval, uh, cutting my future earnings of productions that weren't even released yet by 75 to 100% because everybody just bought it at that cheap price and then never need to order it again. So the passive income that I'd worked incredibly hard to set up that would have been, you know, strategized for years um, to people that had my model releases doxing me. And this was 2015. I don't really think we were talking about cancel culture yet. I don't really think we were talking about doxing yet. Um, but all of those things, including the banding on of everyone deciding to jump on this Lisa Ann is the worst person in the world. And it started with the very first death threat at my home that came in through my landline to my cell phone. I was home recovering from surgery. It was New Year's Eve. I had a friend looking after me. 
And I see my landline register on my cell phone. And I was like, you know what? This can't be good. And remember, I had a 4,000 square foot house. So somebody could have very easily been upstairs. And so I immediately took my girlfriend, put her in front of the alarm. I had cameras. The alarm company called. I said, stay on the phone with them. I went to my kitchen, grabbed a bunch of butcher knives. Like, what am I going to do? And um, waited for the police to come. Luckily, it was early New Year's Eve. So the cops showed up within five minutes. And next thing you know, they are going through my house, floor to floor. There's seven cops. They all split up. You know, they're all in different directions. I hear them pounding through every closet, going through and calling each other. And, you know, from the brief conversation that, that they knew of me, I had already lived there for 10 years. And they said, listen, we've never had a call like this here. You've been here 10 years. Obviously this has to be from the beef that's going on online. I thought it was interesting that they knew, but when you get a bunch of popular people in the adult industry that drive a lot of traffic, all cackling on one person, and this is kind of their territory, they're kind of in a need to know situation. And the cop said to me, well, here's what we're going to prepare you for. This is mental warfare. Most likely nobody's going to hurt you, but somebody is going to try to break you. Are you prepared for mental warfare? And I said, well, you know, like how long do you think this can last? We said, you know, we've seen things like this last year, two years, five years. Someone's going to torture you and you're going to have to withstand it. Can you withstand it? Here's what you need to do. Now, when we listened to that message, the message said, I'm upstairs in your house, coming downstairs to kill you on your couch. Cops are very, you know, they're very smart. This is what they do. And one of the cops looks at me, he's like, obviously this is somebody that knows you because they know the floor plan of your house because a regular stranger wouldn't know your couch, your upstairs or this, that. Think about it. Think about it. These are all calculated things. These are all things. This led on to a year of a lot of this, a lot of death threats, my family being harassed, me being constantly harassed, my neighbors being harassed. This was, it was so, it was so hard to even go online because people that I didn't think disliked me banded on everybody banded on everybody, people that I had just paid a month ago to work for me banded on like everybody banded on. And it made it in that small picture of who I thought I was, I thought I lost everything because that was my world for almost 30 years. But once that was all taken away from me so quickly, and I was able to be still in my own thoughts and kind of going through this decompressing time and then going through the discovery of minimalism, I thought none of these people are who I was. I'm who I am. You know, I got to get through this. It was hard because I felt scared a lot. Like I wasn't sure it was just mental warfare. I wasn't sure if somebody was going to do something to me. I wasn't sure if somebody's fan was going to be like, I'm going to do this to her and then go back to this person that I'm a fan of. And, you know, it was, it was a jarring experience and it was dark and it, it made me feel very unsafe. And there's nothing worse than feeling unsafe. There's just nothing worse. You don't want to do anything because you're so afraid. But it gave me a lot of time to really think who has my back, who's in this with me, who can make it through this time frame with me, um, who's going to quit it. You know, a lot of friends couldn't hang. It was, it was a lot for everybody. It was anybody that was attached to me was kind of sucked into this kind of really dark vortex. And it took me time to really understand like, okay, this is coming from a place of their fear, not my fear. 
this is coming from a place of this woman made us so much money for so many years. And now she's not going to make us money anymore. And now we're not going to make money off of her anymore. Oh no. And then from the talent aspect, which I've over the past couple of years, really tried to dig into the mindset of there's a fear that when someone leaves the industry or any industry that they think they're better than the people that they're leaving behind. And it's not about them. It's about you wanting to have a second act, to do something new, to be mentally challenged to something new, to hang around with a new crew, to meet new people. I mean, I met the nicest people in sports radio, just wonderful, unique people who didn't make great money and were the happiest people I knew. Like things weren't a thing to them. Games were, we had this dialogue of this shared passion that we have no control over that we enjoyed. And so what I've learned and what I try to share is, you know, we should celebrate people who want to make change because that means they want to challenge themselves. They already know what they have here. They've been great at it. And it's awesome to know that you're willing to walk away from such a large income and try something new that isn't guaranteed. That's when life gets boring, when you're doing the same thing for so long that you know the results you're going to get. And so for me, life was just getting boring. And so that whole explosion of everybody's emotions towards me gave me a lot of time to really process the why. And of course, in the beginning, I took somewhat of the blame myself. I I went through a, a realm of time where I thought maybe this is my karma for what I did for a living. Maybe this is what I deserve for being in this environment. Maybe I, I took my own blame for a period of time. Then I realized like, you know, this kind of sets your nice up life. You traveled, you made your own schedule. Why should you be so dismissive of the good that came out of that just because it dismissed you? I allowed it to try and erase the history I had that I still felt connected to, that I still felt good about because there was this dark cloud over all of it. But I then was letting them control my thoughts that I had already had about the life that I already lived. And so it was this circular understanding of it all. And the gang analogy that I started with is really just about a lack of people seeing other people making different moves. And now the reason why I have dudes do better and I've gone back to these shows and I'm going back to AVN for my first time in almost 10 years this year is because I want to be present for everyone that maybe one day would be in the same shoes I was back in 2013 and 14 when I decided, hey, it's time for me to create change in my life. I'm ready for a new challenge. And I want them to understand how there could be some challenges that come with that, but they're not about you. As long as you stay true to your mission and don't allow the noise to make you have self-doubt. Um I went through uh, uh, six months of going to court. Uh, I went to get a restraining order over the one person who was putting out my information and, you know, having lawyers, something I never knew about, very expensive, uh, going to court, very expensive. And, you know, I, I, I pretty much got a judge that just didn't really believe that I deserved any privacy because of the choices that I had already made in my life for my career and was denied a restraining order from somebody that was harassing me over this person's personal opinion of who I was because of what I did for a living. And I was like, this is the system. Like, and that day my lawyer looked at me and goes, it's okay. 
was like, we didn't lose. You can appeal. We'll get a different judge. It'll be a different story. And I said, before we go through all that, you tell me today, right now, rolling the dice. So I'm at a, I'm at a table in Vegas, right? I'm rolling the dice. How much did today cost me? And how much will I be risking if I lose again? Because it would be double of what today. And he said, well, today cost you about $250,000. And I said to him, well, sorry, but I'm not a gambler. I'll take the loss. I'll pay the legal fees of the person that's been harassing me. And I'll just walk away from all of this. I'll walk away from the lawsuit with my distributor. I'll walk away. I walked away after losing about $800,000 of my savings. But you were free. The priority was you. Rather I couldn't live in the past anymore. I yeah. couldn't live in the past. I was just living in the past. Now when I hear people deciding about maybe going like, do you want to live in the past? Also, it's time consuming. It's expensive. And what's the end game? Are you going to feel better winning something? I, I should have just stuck with, you know, the police told me to do it. Then the detective told me to do it. And then I got a lawyer and I allowed people at that time. I was such a sponge and I was just listening to too many people. And I really messed that up. But if I could go back and tell myself then you just got to stay focused. You already knew where you were going. You were going to do podcasting and sports radio. Just stay focused. Let this mental warfare happen and do not respond. I responded by going to court. I responded by getting a lawyer. And that was where I made a horrible mistake that I ended up getting back into the business after that. I wouldn't say that's a mistake though. No, it wasn't a mistake to get back in. It was a mistake to do the court thing. Well, even but I told my... I, yeah, it, it was. You did the best you, know you could with what you understood at the time. Yeah, for sure. Like, for like sure. With the wisdom for sure. you accumulated as a result. Oh, yeah. Now I'm like, okay, nothing's that important. Right. But I told myself after thinking about it for a year, I bet you yeah, I could go back into the business for a year, maybe a year and a half, and make back every dime that I lost in court. I worked for 15 months straight with no days off. From 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 webcamming to shooting scenes to producing movies to building up a library again so I could be living off this passive income to doing it and I just said I'm I'm grinding through it and I did it again the same way when I had the money back I didn't tell anybody I packed up my stuff and moved <laughs> I was like okay now we're really done um, but it was a a wild learning experience and it's something that. No matter what, if you're a coworker to somebody and they decide that they want to do something else, don't ever look at them like, oh, you must think you're better than me because you don't want to work here anymore. Or, oh, it's not about you. It's not about the place. It's about them. And that was a huge part of contention. And as I've spoken and reconnected with some people who were not nice to me that now I'm seeing in person and we're having nice little conversations like, well, I just thought, you know, and I said, but you were thinking about your perception of me and you never stopped and asked me why I was making change in my life. You never did. You just assumed it was for the worst that I thought I was better than you. And that was never it. So it's interesting how people form their own opinions and they cut people out. It's like, you can have so many colleagues if you stay connected with people that you've crossed paths with at one time in your life that you'd never work with again, but they were still a part of your happiness and you still like them as human beings. Why should you cut them off? Because they decided to create change for themselves. That has nothing to do with you. But in a certain mentality, everything has something to do with me. Everything means something about me. If I think that I'm an idea, so right? And that's the problem is that 
you just choosing to do something other than what I'm doing invalidates the value that I'm deriving from this thing that I'm invested in. And it's because it's making me doubt, but you're not making me doubt. I'm doubting and I'm blaming you because I don't want right. to reconcile that. It's so interesting that that's often the case. And this is the reason that you quietly exit, right? You do your thing and you leave. And that's pretty much it. But people go through the same thing in religion, right? Where all of a sudden they decide to look at things a different way. And the entirety of that religion goes, you're, you're invalidating what we believe. It's like, I, I don't care what you're doing. You do your thing, right? But this is my path. But I, I can't possibly figure that out if I'm dwelling on myself. Everything's about me. And that's what gets in the way. It really is. Mm-hmm. What an incredible story. It was a it was a wild ride. And it it made for me to ask a lot of challenging questions. And I think coming out of it, it's made me definitely more attentive to other people because it's made me see things like, oh, I hope this person isn't going through this right now. And I hope they feel strong in their convictions. Um, I hope that they know, you know, like it's been really cool to send a lot of the young people that I'm meeting and having on dudes to better my book, because when they read it, then they send me these really thought provoking emails. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you went through this. And I experienced something similar and now I don't feel alone. And us sharing our worst moments really allows other people to not feel as isolated when they're going through theirs. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's empathy right there. Like being able to connect with someone through that experience. And we actually, it's funny because we just had um, some live streaming we were doing earlier and someone was asking, they kept going on about how they're, they're struggling right now. They just want to be clear. They just want to get to a clear state of mind and, and they're suffering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and basically they were curious, how do I stay in a state of clarity. And the reality about, you know, being clear with maybe less idea of yourself or or not suffering through so many things is that there's no allowance for depth in your experience. Like getting caught up in the shit is a requirement to have this experience and be able to connect with anyone. And so I think it's fucking awesome and incredible that you have this experience, this very frightening scary, difficult experience where everyone turned their backs on you and you were able to come out the other end free in yourself and now allow yourself to, to utilize it, to connect with people and, and share that story and allow people to see that, you know, they're not so alone in going through those experiences. And I find it very interesting with, you know, through all of this, letting go more and more of the idea of yourself, recognizing that you're not the past. You're you're nothing that has been. You just are what is here and now. And, and you said earlier with the idea of yourself, you kind of recognize finding yourself was recognizing that, you know, you really enjoyed traveling and, and having experiences. And the funniest thing about all that stuff is that they're all uncertain. They're not stagnant ideas, traveling, going, exploring new things and, and putting yourself in an environment that is entirely uncertain. It's unknown. It's new. And having experiences, like all experiences are objectively new and uncertain. So I just find it very funny that, you know, finding yourself was just recognizing that you're now that you're free, you're able to experience just situations that are inherently uncertain and you really enjoy them. And isn't that all that finding yourself ever really comes down to is that there is nothing that you can define yourself as relaxing into that state of uncertainty that you can't actually know. So let's go have some experiences and and find out along the way. And for someone searching for certainty, you are setting yourself up for a very boring disaster. 
because some days we feel great and we're peaking with energy to do things. And some days you don't feel as good. And if you don't take those days where you don't feel as good to maybe say, okay, maybe I should just sit down and read for an hour. Maybe I should just step away from my, I always like tell people this, like nobody knows that you're not in a meeting. Okay. You can just put that you're in a meeting on your, you know, on your digital thing at work and go and sit and be with yourself. Nobody knows we're all working, working virtually. What are you worried about? You know, tell people you're busy. They don't know you're not, but find your ebbs and flows and feel them and allow yourself to go through them because those moments of uncertainty, those dips are where it's going to help you have some high points, right? We want to go with the rules and two other things on that topic. One, I like to be so uncertain that the only thing I want when I travel is my round trip flight. So when I get to my place, uh, that's when I start to like, I've, I've been reading about it, you know, forever when I'm, I'm working on like, Hey, is there a driver I can use from the event? I'll pay for like a couple of days. And I buy my train tickets there. I, I look at what I want to do once I'm there. I don't want to have everything planned out and maybe have an outdoor day. And it rains that day where, when you're there, you can look at the weather in advance and say, Oh, this is a good day to do museums. And this is a good day to do out things. But I did a month in Italy where all I had was my round trip flight. I did not know where I was going to go in between. And I traveled, I did 2,300 miles by car. I just wanted to go like, you know, what? we're kind of close to here. Let's go out and look at this little town. Let's drive out here today. Yeah. Let's just do that. There is something so freeing and magical. I just don't want to have a trip completely planned out and not like, because you might meet somebody that says to you, and it's usually a server, someone super lovely that tells you about something off the beaten path that tourists don't go to. And if you're able to, you could be like, oh, we have five free days and we're just starting to map out what we're going to do now. What do you suggest? And you, you get real suggestions that are authentic. And then the second thing I'll add on that is when I was truly taking that time, I was also evaluating who would be by my side forever. And so there were some people that were hanging on and I'll use my family as an example. So I've had a pretty torturous relationship with my family and never being supportive of my choices. Look, I understand the choices that I made are not the easiest for people to understand or accept. So I get that, but to just see how I live my life and to spend time with me. And then each time I would spend time with my parents, especially my mom, you know, my mom, every time I saw her would tell me no one's ever going to hire me and no one's ever going to love me. And because of the choices that I made for work. And so when I was going through this horrible situation, she was kind of really feeding me with, well, you know, that's kind of what you get, you know, what did you think was going to, and she was not supportive at all. And so finally I decided to play what I wrote about in my book called Russian roulette. There was a family situation. I was abused when I was younger and I spoke to my parents and spoke to my mom about it. She disregarded it as if it wasn't important. And then later on kind of blamed it on me. And so I decided like, you know what? I'm going to go back. I'm going to lay it all out with these people. And if they're willing to all sit down in a room and have a conversation, we'll move forward. If not, we're probably going to part ways. And that was August of 2015. It was a failed attempt. And I was living... I had an apartment in the city for a long time with my house in LA. So I would come back and forth and I would take the bus to Easton because it was such an easy trip and who needs to rent a car? It's, it's so easy. And I remember my mom saying like, I'm going to take you back to the bus station early. Like I was there for a weekend. I couldn't even stay the whole weekend. And when we drove that day, I knew that ride, this is the last time I'm going to see her. 
And it was devastating. There's no doubt. It was an added layer of sadness in a time where I was already very sad, but it has been so much easier for me to live my life, not trying to be somebody I'm not to just make people kind of like, and accept me, not even fully love me. Cause if you love somebody, you love them unconditionally. And so to not be on this roller coaster of like being excited to see the people where I came from, I mean, I go back now and see my friends from high school, but I don't see my family and trying to have a difficult conversation with them and saying, Hey, you know, these were things that truly affected me. And though I've forgiven them, I'd like to have an open conversation and I would like an apology. You know, I'd like to sit down and talk about this. And when that was never going to be the case, I thought to myself, well, you know what? These people will not remain as a minimalist. It's not just stuff. It's relationships that no longer bring you value. Whatever it is that's toxic, whether it's spending money you can't afford on things you don't need, or whether it's having relationships in your life that are going to pay interest in a very negative way forever and are never going to get better. You're never going to get out of that debt. I ripped off the bandaid and I, I I made it through it. And now I feel better about holidays. I feel better about because I didn't need to be on that roller coaster anymore. I didn't need to feel bad about myself to go and face people. And now that they're gone, you know, when I do my radio shows around the holidays, I always make sure I say, you know, I hope you enjoy your friends, your loved ones. I never say family because I do understand that there's a lot of people out there that don't have the same family relationship as other people. My friends are my family. I spend Thanksgiving with them every year in Lake Tahoe. I spend Christmas and New Year's in the city. I like to be on my own. I like to do my own thing. I like to watch basketball and football and I like to just be, those are my down days. Those are my, like, I'm going to maybe sit and read for a couple of hours. I like to be on the phone talking to different friends, but I have learned to understand that the small town mentality, the, what I grew up with, the, all of those things that they were carrying had nothing to do with me. And that I felt better about myself when I removed those negative relationships from my life. And it's hard because people will say to you, how could you do that? And I'm like, well, just because we're family doesn't mean it's healthy. And it was toxic. And I didn't realize how toxic it was until about a year went by, especially during COVID to know that neither of my parents reached out once to see if where I lived or what I was doing. I was like, okay, this is some real out of sight, out of mind stuff. And this is, this is really interesting. This is probably the weirdest thing I'm ever going to, we're ever going to go through as a world, you know, hopefully. And that was just the clarity that I needed that they were never in it with me. They were never by my side. They never understood me. I had Peggy looking over me and I knew that Peggy was with me, even though she's not here, her legacy lives on in my spirit. And so, you know, but I got rid of relationships as well. And I think people really have to think about that, about what weighs you down. It's not just stuff. Sometimes it's people. Yeah. Your attachment to them. The fact that you think that somehow your existence is relational to how they perceive you and all of that. And that, that takes courage. It takes will. And it takes a willingness to recognize that your value is not measured by how people perceive you at all. I wanted to go back quickly to what you were saying about traveling and about how things just tend to work out when you just let things happen. Um, I find that's always the case in, in terms of facing a challenge at home, doing a project, having a conversation with somebody where it's something you've never dealt with before. As soon as you stop thinking about yourself, 
your intelligence is right there. It's like the insights right there and things just kind of flow. So long as you're not trying to get anywhere and you're not trying to avoid it, you're just being yourself. Everything seems to work fluidly. The timing is impeccable. It's like you were saying, all of a sudden somebody walks up to you you're like, have you ever checked this out? It's like, wow, that was really good timing. I was just thinking about that. Always happens, but it's always when we're not thinking about ourselves. It's always when we're not in, the, in our own way and just allowing life to kind of inform each and every one of our steps. So I think it's really interesting that in your path, you are practicing faith. It's not that you have faith because having faith is kind of one of those things. It's again, it's conceptual. You're looking up to something and saying, it's going to be fine. Look, this thing tells me it's going to be fine. And that's not really faith. But building faith is going into situations that you don't know and allowing yourself to process them and recognize, well, I was never actually in any danger in terms of my self-worth or my value or anything else. I can just do this stuff. It's going to be fine. I'll just roll with it. And I think that that's so interesting because when you're not thinking about yourself, you're just the awareness of reality, which is why everything works out so well, because you're God. You are the awareness of the universe and your timing is impeccable until you get in the way with this smaller version of yourself that's an idea. And then it just throws everything off. You have nothing but distortion. So I just wanted to say, because I know we have to wrap up here in, in, in a short bit, that you are out there doing what religion was meant to do and lost for their fear of judgment from a conceptual God that never existed, where they could have just been being God and, and spreading the love that the religion says God is going to do. So well done. And I'm so happy that you've come here on the show. I'm looking forward to, to talking to you again. It's been a great conversation. I know that your listeners are, you know, very open-minded and understanding of not what you see is what you get. And to, to like, I think the worst trips I've ever taken were when I was going with friends who were like a month before, like, we got to do this. 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 And I'm like, just take a trip with me and let me show you what it's like. And they're like panicked, you know, like, what, what, what I'm like, you have nice conversations with people everywhere. Like I, I'm the person that when I'm checking out of the hotel, the woman that's been talking with me the whole week at the front desk walks around to give me a hug. You know what I mean? Because we bond with them. You're from here. I, I want to explore your beautiful country freely. I want to do these things. So like planning every step of your life, there's no room for magic to happen. And magic only happens if you allow it and letting go of things my steps with minimalism, if I didn't take that, I might still be in a toxic relationship with my family. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's awesome too, when you begin to let go more and more of that desire for certainty and that clinging to certainty and recognize that everything's always been uncertain. It doesn't even have to be a vacation that you experience that magic. It starts to unfold in your day-to-day -day life. You make a little change in your in your day-to-day -day morning routine, all of a sudden everything changes. You learn something new, a, a new insight arises, and your whole day can be like, mm, I don't know what's gonna happen. Let's go find out. This is fucking exciting. So yeah, with all that said, Lisa, I really appreciate you coming on here with us. You are an incredible person and an incredible example for anyone out there to recognize what's really possible in themselves as they let go of the ideas that they hold on to, the desire for certainty, the relaxing into the reality of uncertainty. And I think you are an incredible example of just what we talk about on this podcast all the time. And, and because 
you are who you are, you're able to have these massive ripples. And it's so cool to be able to watch you do it. And so again, I really appreciate you coming on and I'm very excited for our next time that we chat. And when I'm back in New York, I'll let you know, and maybe we can get one of those walks in. We're going to do a walk and talk for sure. You know, I love to go to Central Park. It was a pleasure talking with both of you and being here for your listeners. I look forward to learning more about your events too, which is something I'd love to do one day, uh, mark out that time and just be in that free space. But thank you for all the work that you're doing. You know, I clicked with you the second I met you. Uh, I love everything that you do on social media. You make me think every day in such a great way and also make me stop everything that I'm doing and just be in that moment. So keep doing it. Thank you everyone for joining us. We will see you next week. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with Lisa Ann, definitely reach out to her on social media. We will include all of her details below in the description, of course. Thank you again, Lisa Ann. Have a lovely evening. Bye everyone.